Welcome to Nakubo in Brief, a podcast series from the National Association of College and University Business Officers. I'm President and CEO John Walda, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in today. Our mission with this podcast is to help our listeners better understand the challenges that face the business of higher education. Our hope is that you walk away with a stronger sense of the trends, policies, legislative, and regulatory issues that may impact campuses today and in the future. You can find resources for today's episode, as well as a wide variety of educational tools at www.nakubo.org. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Nakubo in Brief. Thanks so much for tuning in. My name is Megan Strand, your host, and I am so pleased to be joined today by Brian Alexander, futurist, researcher, writer, and consultant who is here to talk to us about the future of higher education. Welcome, Brian. Welcome. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for the chance. So we're going to ask you to pull out your crystal ball today and and take us out of our comfort zone a little bit and talk about the future of higher education. And there's lots of different ways we can address this. But I was hoping the first thing you could talk about is how demographics are reshaping higher education. Well, this is in some ways, for a futurist, this is the closest we have to a sure bet. Demographics tend not to change. They really get baked in and they don't unless something really tremendously weird and or awful happens, uh, we're t- we tend to be stuck with a population for a generation or two. So looking at demographics, I find, a v- is a very powerful tool for futuring in higher education. And what we found is that we're undergoing a major, major revolution. Uh, the time was you could assume that the American population had a lot of children, a lot of teenagers, a good number of people in their 20s, a slightly less, num- slightly smaller number in their 30s and so on, a kind of pyramid with the youngest at the bottom and the eldest at the top. But what's happened now uh, due to a few factors is that that pyramid has become something of a rectangle where we have roughly as many kids as we have seniors. We have roughly as many teens as we have people in their 50s. And we're not the only country that's going through this. In fact, you can see the similar patterns happening in Northern Europe. And if you look at Japan, they've actually gone to kind of reverse pyramid Mm -hmm. where they have larger numbers of older people than they do younger people. Um, and there, the causes for this are pretty well known. And one we know is that the more education a population has, the fewer kids they have. That's a pretty you know, serious constant. And in America, we've been giving ourselves more and more education over the past few uh, generations. There's also a lot of concern about overpopulation. So we have people voluntarily not having kids or having smaller numbers. But the flip side of this is uh, a success story. Our, our medical revolution in the 20th century has pushed our lifespans longer and longer. We can survive things that used to kill us. So our, our average death age keeps going up higher and higher through the 70s into the 80s. And that's, that's a great success story. But when it comes to higher ed, this is a little confusing for us. I mean, we tend to assume that the typical higher education institution is a college or university which teaches 18 to 21-year-olds. It's no longer the case. That 18 to 21-year-old population is now a minority. It's a kind of specialized niche. The typical students in American higher education are adults. And we'll probably see the median age just keep ticking upwards as the population's own median age begins to tick upwards as well. So this has all kinds of implications. It means that if we're going to be talking about higher education as a whole, we can't afford to be distracted by a niche like, say, the undergraduate liberal arts experience, which is vital and awesome and, and terrific, but again, a, a small sample. Um, it's like talking about movies and only talking about um, indie movies. 
great, important stuff. But if you don't talk about Hollywood, you're missing the big picture, right? No pun intended. <laughs> this also means that we have to rethink uh, adult education. Uh, in part because that's the growing body of students. But also we have to rethink what adults need, uh, who they are, uh, what they demand. Uh, I think one side effect of this is we're seeing experiments with new types of students. Uh, for example, um, we're seeing the international student population continue to grow year after year. As you know, our, as our traditional age population shrinks, colleges and universities are reaching out to East Asia, the Middle East, Latin America, uh, Europe to try and you know uh, fill that bucket. Um, then there's also the possibility of teaching seniors. I mean, I I think that's a huge opportunity that colleges and universities haven't really yet grabbed. Uh, as we get growing numbers of people over 65 who have some amount of free time and uh, sometimes the biological desire to keep their brains going um, and they have some resources, I think this is a tremendous field uh, for expansion. But I mean, if we're talking about educating elders, that's a very, very different proposition than we used to assume, uh, which is teaching 18-year-olds. It's interesting that you're, you're calling sort of that 18 to 21-year-old a, a niche because I would say – most business officers listening to this podcast would say that is the niche. So it's it's interesting that you're you're challenging people to kind of break out. Are you seeing that anywhere? Are there are there pockets of innovation that you're seeing where those adult educa- education is is happening productively? Yes, and primarily online because we have the sense that if you're going to edu- if you're going to teach adults adults have families and or work and so they have you know very constricted schedules so shifting online is a great way to meet them and that's one of the major sources of the boom in uh, higher education online in fact uh, I was at a meeting I don't know if I told you this uh, I was at a dinner meeting with a bunch of deans from uh, a few SUNY institutions in upstate New York and we were talking about this and one of the deans said I don't know. I don't think convenience is really an important thing for adults trying to figure out where they should go to college. Hmm. And the waitress stopped and said, oh, I disagree. It was totally important for me. And I said, well, what do you mean? She said, well, when I was 18, I had a kid and I was working part time and I wanted to go to college, but I couldn't juggle the schedule and it didn't work for me. So I dropped out. But now I'm, I forget the age. I think she said 26. She said, now my child is older. They're going to school. I have more work, but I, I going online just really makes a difference for me. And she said, then she stopped holding a platter and said, do you mind talking about this? Went, oh. So that's that's one reason for pushing for online. The, to go back to the niche thing, though, this is a matter of perception. Uh, we still pay too much attention to books about that small niche. I mean, so for example, the book Excellent Sheep is widely talked about, even though it really only covers six universities in the US, maybe only two. Uh, there's a new book out by a Stanford Dean of Student Life who says, well, I can talk about the undergraduate experience in the United States. I can speak authoritatively about all the undergraduate students. And she's talking about the undergrads at Stanford. Mm. You know, so we, we have to be very, very careful about this. I think we need to look to authorities like Dean Dad, you know, the blogger who writes from the community college perspective, for example. Um, we need to pay more attention to the for-profits because whatever we think about them, whatever scandals they have with funding and so on, they still educate a lot of people and, again, primarily adults. So it really is a question of perception. But to go back to your, your sense of innovation, though, I, I think also we're seeing uh, the flipped classroom model 
And that is pretty, I think, broadly accepted as a viable model. And I'm seeing this everywhere, both the undergrad traditional age niche as well as adult learners. I mean, it really depends on uh, individual faculty members, depends on the infrastructure technology set up to do recording and time shifting and content and so on. I mean, that's that's a big niche. But, but if we're really going to talk about innovation, we really have to talk about the mainstream teachers. And I'm sorry, the mainstream uh, student who is an adult, possibly working usually with a family. How do you recommend people widen their scope? Because you can you can easily see how this would happen being in sort of an insulated environment and focusing on a particular niche at all times. But but how in addition to a couple of the resources you've provided, what should people be doing to kind of widen their perspective a little bit? A few things. Uh, one is to pay more attention to science fiction um, because oh, that's interesting. It's an intellectual tool that lets you think about the future. And thinking about the future is hard. We know this is difficult. There is a, I don't have the title with me. There is a political science book from a few years ago, which is looking at prognostications from leading pundits and analysts in geopolitics. And they found that the predictions tend to be less accurate than random guesses. Um, and those are for professionals doing this. Right. I mean, most people who are not professional analysts spend most of their time appropriately focused on putting out fires, being in the trenches, looking at things from a six-month, three-month, two-week horizon. Uh, people in libraries, people in IT, people in planning. I mean, they can have a four- or five-year horizon if they have a strategic plan, but even then it comes down to implementing it, what the fund flow is for this semester or this year. So it's, it's very difficult for us to get out. And, and science fiction is a, is, a, is a master at getting us to think about different times. The second thing to do is, um, I believe, to really make use of social media and really take advantage of whatever tools work for you. So it might be Twitter, it might be Facebook, it might be Google+. It could be podcasts, which are, of course, awesome. Uh, it could be uh, web video, it could be Pinterest, whatever works for you. Uh, and in order to get more feedback and more news, uh, and when you do this, to deliberately pick people to follow who aren't in your comfort zone. Hmm. Uh, so, if, for example, I live in a state that has uh, almost no Latino population, and in my own professional training, I never studied Spanish. I never studied uh, Latino American history. And this is a gap which bothers me. So among other things, I follow a lot of people in Latin American politics on Twitter. Hmm. Uh, there's actually a hashtag called Latism. I don't speak Spanish, so I made the accent wrong. Latism. Um, <laughs> it, just, it just gives me a nice insight into what people are thinking in that world and teaches me a lot. So if you're a CFO for a, a liberal arts college or, say, a uh, public undergrad for your institution, um, follow Twitter feeds or Pinterest or whatever from people at community colleges, from big state schools, from uh, research ones that are serving unusual populations. Just, you know, use the social media to get out of the comfort zone. And, and for social media, you can't beat the price. It's usually free. Uh, and very easy to use. So uh, that's the second thing. Uh, the third is to pay attention to the interinstitutional groups that are doing work studying these kind of things. So they could be groups like Educons for Educational Technology. They could be the Coalition for Networked Information, which looks at big informatics. It could be Nakubo, for example, you know, which obviously <laughs> is a group for CFOs. It could be the New Media Consortium, where I've been looking, where I've been working for a year. I mean, there's all kinds of groups that are that have the luxury, the privilege of being able to think across a sector. And so I think you can learn a great deal from those. When it comes to demographics, 
I don't think there's a good word for this. We used to talk about echo boom effects where you'd have a boom and then later on a boom would follow. And I, I don't think there's an echo crash idea. But when we look at people in their 20s right now, demographically, they're behaving in some really unusual ways historically. If we compare them to different people in their 20s in the 20th century, we find that they're not buying cars um, basically almost at all. Um, they're putting off buying houses. They're putting off having children. And one of the reasons for that is, well, it's our fault. Uh, Two-thirds of them have student debt, and that student debt is roughly $30,000. Mm. So if you're 22, 24, 28, that's an obstacle to getting married, to deciding to have a kid, to putting a down payment down for a mortgage for a house. So it's interesting that it may be one side effect of our student loan structure is crimping gross domestic product um, growth. But also it may be giving us a demographic echo effect. If these kids, these 20-sums are their adults, if they're putting off having children, it means that down the road, we're going to see a K-12 population continue to shrink, which leads us to think, wow, should higher education, one, one possible side effect is, should we lobby for more immigration into the U.S., for example? So, I mean, the demographics are very, very powerful. Talk a little bit about other economic forces that you feel are having the biggest impact on higher education that people should be aware of and paying closer attention to than potentially they are. Well, I, I do feel a bit like bringing Coles to Newcastle, of, of talking about economic forces to uh, an audience that's interested in, in, in business and consisting largely of CFOs and people in that line of work. But here goes, here are a couple of things. Uh, one is that we know Americans want to spend less money on higher education, and we've been doing it. Uh, over the past five years, we've seen that a lot of American families are downshifting, if you will, you know, if you think about the U.S. News World Report hierarchy of schools, we see that people are shifting down a bit. Instead of going to a research one, they're going to a state school. Instead of a state school, they might be going to a regional school and so on, uh, largely to save money. We've seen uh, people uh, staying at home, so trying to go to regional or very, very local institutions in order to stay at home and not have to do the residential experience if they're that age and uh, inclination. So that's you know, there's a change in consumer habits, which is very, very important. The second thing to think about is is we've been doing a couple of interesting experiments in higher education to try to control costs. And it's a good question if they've worked or not. One of the experiments is we decided to change tenure. We used to have the idea that uh, the majority of faculty in the United States should be tenure track or tenured. Uh, we valued that for all kinds of reasons. We decided not to do that anymore. The majority of faculty in the U.S. are adjuncts or part-time. Tenure and tenure track positions are a minority that's shrinking every year, and there's no countervailing force for that. There's no public interest in expanding it. Uh, universities and colleges are not changing this. And in fact, research ones continue to overproduce PhDs. And in fact, the, uh, the professional association that I sometimes belong to, the Modern Language Association, urged research one universities to produce more PhDs, you know, basically, among other things, heightening the problem. Um, so adjunctification, among other things, is a human, humanitarian crisis, but one side effect is it reduces costs. You know, if you can hire um, three adjuncts at $2,000 each to um, teach uh, for a year, um, you know, the total cost for them is $12,000, say, and that's a lot cheaper than a full-time faculty member with tenure or tenure on the tenure track who may cost sixty, seventy, eighty, hundred thousand dollars $100,000. So we've been doing this as an experiment to control costs. That's the main reason. And uh, it's a little scary to think that if we haven't, if we hadn't done that as a thought experiment, 
if we instead had maintained the tenure lines that, uh, say, the baby boom generation enjoyed, if we had continued with those, I wonder how high tuition would be now. Mm. Um, but that's one thing that we've done. It's a kind of quiet experiment that we've done to ourselves. Um, and that's one thing That's one thing to bear in mind. I mean, there's a lot of outrage now uh, about adjunctification. Doonesbury did some very, very powerful strips about that. Um, if we want to change that, we're going to have to either cut massively somewhere else, which we really can't, we'll have to boost tuition. Or somehow coax states into giving us more money, and they really don't want to do that. Um, a, a second thing to think about is just the reminder that we have enormous sunk costs. Uh, those tenured faculty uh, are that we re- that we retain um, because of tenure, uh, they can't be gotten rid of easily. So their costs continue to be there and to rise. We also have physical plants, which, uh, thanks to the humanities arms race, continue to grow. And even for non-residential institutions, the idea is, you know, you want better and better classrooms, more impressive campuses. So we have these, these basically these sunk costs that uh, can't be controlled very well. Um, and we have, to, we have to address those. So I, I think these two, they're kind of two contradictory forces. On the one hand, we've been cutting our labor costs in their hand. We have the sunk costs that, that mitigate against that. And that, that balance, that maybe that whipsaw, is actually a difficult one for us to plan with. What other things have you seen that you feel are innovative to address these sorts of economic issues? And to come back to online learning, one of the advantages that online learning has is that schedule advantage. Um, I was speaking with one um, Northeastern institution, and they had this interesting uh, bit of analysis they did on their website. They had a they had a web page which is basically a landing page of, I'm interested in your school. I want to start taking classes here. How do I learn about it? And they looked at when that page got the most hits, and then they were really surprised. Let me ask you. I mean, Megan, what 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 times of the year do you think that page would get the most hits? Summer breaks when people have downtime, yeah. such as end of year. Yeah, my you're right. Um, my guess was. Uh, September, and I was totally wrong. The mm. two biggest dates were the day after Christmas and the day after Thanksgiving. And they figured it was basically family members who felt guilt and shame, or perhaps inspiration. <laughs> you know, oh, there's Uncle you know, Jeff, or there's Aunt Sue, and they've got their degree. Why don't you have one? And so, but then they figured, well, this is a problem, because the day after Thanksgiving and the day after Christmas, school are usually closed. Right. Or, or they have massive downtime. So they had to figure, well, it's a competitive environment. We have a shrinking uh, population. Why don't we fight for that? So they had to rejigger their online program so that a student could start taking classes on December 27th. And, uh, and it worked. So I, I would say that's one interesting example of innovation where we can have on-demand learning that starts when a learner wants to. Um, I mean, you're seeing this in the MOOC world right now where there's a split between MOOCs that are offered on a pretty rigid calendar where you got to start April 3rd or mm-hmm. you'll miss it. And then there's MOOCs which can start whenever you're interested. Uh, and I think the latter is a sign of, uh, of, of competition to try and do that. Um, the second thing to think about as a form of innovation is what I call the Virginia Tech Math Emporium model. Have you been there or seen that? I have not. Are you a Mac person or a PC person? I'm a Mac person. Okay, well, you have to go. Consider it a kind of pilgrimage. Okay. I'll, I'll explain why. Uh, Virginia Tech was have, basically they were having an issue with uh, remedial math classes. They, they didn't like teaching them. The students didn't like taking them. Pass rates were abysmal, and it was really a challenge. So they tried an experiment. They bought a, a, a department store that was across the street from their campus. They cleared out the entire ground floor, which is this big, big space, like 30 feet high, 
and they filled it up with as many Macs as they could cram in in one space. And what's interesting is the – I'm not doing it justice to they crammed in. I mean it's – apparently it's the world's second biggest Mac lab. Hence oh, my pill. gosh. Yeah. Um, they're on tables which are beautifully designed. So if you want to work with peers, they're nicely, nicely designed so you can set up next to people and do a work group of two, three, four, or five. If you want to work by yourself, the same thing happens. And all these Macs are filled with math software. Uh, tutorials, resources, tools like um, um, MathLab. I mean, you can do an awful lot of stuff with them. Now, lining the walls of this are a bunch of tables where you have math experts. They're tutors. I mean, some of them are grad students, some of them are very bright undergrads, some of them are professionals. Um, And basically, when you get stuck at your Mac, you can make a signal. And the signal right now is pretty funny. It's very low rent. They have bright red plastic cups and you pick one up and you put it on top of a little spike. And you can see it from across this vast room. And one of these tutors will come right to your Mac and help you out. Wow. That's the, hilarious that they have this low-tech signaling yeah. option in a I, Mac I, lab. <laughs> you'd think there'd be some kind of a shiny icon of Steve Jobs smiling or something. Right? Yeah. No, it, it totally – and it, it's a big success. The pass rates have gone up. Morale is much higher. People are much more interested. I mean, it's a, it's a big win, and it's been copied by a few other institutions. So I'm thinking that this is not a physical model. This is a paradigm that people can think about. Imagine um, a class, say, political science class, uh, and you've got a prof on your campus who teaches this class. Well, what if we replace them with the best online material, so lectures, exercises, content, quizzes, all kinds of great stuff drawn from maybe the MOOC providers, maybe from open education. It's, you know, all kinds of places. And then instead of having your full-time professor on campus, instead you have a TA or you have maybe one full-time professor who works with 20 classes. And they're basically there on demand when students put up the red cup. You know, so students get to work through this material online. And then when they have a question about Max Weber or about, you know, uh, election competition results between Hong Kong and Singapore or whatever, then they can ping this person for help and they can help them. They don't have to be in a physical room. This person could just be available online or maybe through office hours. I, I call this the math emporium model, and I think this would reduce costs in a lot of ways. It might not. It might be frightening. Uh, it might result in unemployment, uh, which is a humanitarian crisis. But I wonder how many schools would think about doing this. One more innovation just to, just to touch on. Uh, I mentioned open education resources. I mean, this is one of the great revolutions of our time. That is where we now have the ability to provide teaching materials in almost every discipline that are on par with the materials that are available from professional publishers. And we're seeing this in the textbook world. Um, and we're seeing this as well in scholarly publication. Uh, so there's a big battle going on. Uh, between publishers and scholars trying to figure out how to structure this. But if you want to save money, having OER materials uh, for textbooks, for example, is a great way to save students when students are paying hundreds, even thousands of dollars for textbooks. To have them pay nothing or comparatively few dollars is a big win. On the same, on the same you know, movement uh, for scholarly publication, the cost of scholarly journals is just constantly escalating, getting higher and higher. Um, and 
ultimately most many colleges and universities can't afford them. So if we can use open access scholarly publication, we can reduce the prices tremendously, then maybe we can have greater access to more material, which is a real win for the basic causes of education and research. So I think open education and open access to the scholarly publication, those are two really, really important innovations for cost savings. Well, you're, you're alluding to my next question and next topic, which is sort of your one of your passions. So uh, I guess we'll have, to, we'll have to dip our toe into this water and know that there's much more from Brian Alexander. Um, but that subject is technology. And you've sort of alluded to it a little bit with things like Mac Labs. But what, which technologies that are emerging right now or present right now, do you think are most challenging for higher ed? Oh, what a great question. What a great question. Uh, I think mobile is one of the most challenging. Um, I mean, on the IT side, mobile is expensive to support. It's very challenging. That is, if, if you're not in the IT world, you have to imagine IT staff who have been for decades supporting desktop and laptop computers, and they have all these strategies and plans, and they're very, very good at that. Well, now they have to support new breed of devices with new operating systems such as Android or the iOS or the Windows uh, phone. They have to support them and they have different needs. Uh, they may have to um, not just provide Wi-Fi on campus but may have to negotiate with telecoms to provide AT&T signal or Verizon signal. And that's a, you know, that's a whole other set of expectations. But it's, it's more than the IT demand, the challenge to the – classroom experience is huge um, because we have faculty who now see themselves competing with mobile devices. Mm. That's an enormous, enormous challenge. And it's a, it's a deep and complex one. It's, it's never exactly what it appears on the surface. I mean, so for example, um, we think about the pedagogical boon of mobile devices. That is, you know, where during a, a session, I can quickly upload a question to the discussion board for the class or the prof- from a student, the professor says something that I don't catch and I can't interrupt them or I'm too scared to interrupt them. I can quickly make a note or Google it and find out more information. Uh, it makes it easier in some ways, not all, to take and share notes. Um, then there's also the advantage of um, being able to uh, – uh, time shift. So if we have a class in the French Revolution and I'm a student, I've got a thought about Marat and the class discusses Marat but moves on before I can get to it, I can save that and then follow up on it later on. I can maybe send a note to the professor or I can upload a comment to the discussion board um, so that we can have conversation. I can tweet it out or do a blog post. So I can take that live discussion uh, from the class and then extend it further, which is a real boon. Um, but then there's the downside of students who, uh, you know, perhaps play Facebook or Minecraft instead of listening to a lecture on uh, anatomical uh, structures. <laughs> and so that's that's one of the biggest, biggest challenges. And it's not just in the classroom. Uh, this shows up in academic life elsewhere. I mean, so you can think about, for example, academic conferences where we have academics who may complain about students using mobile devices in the classroom. But when a peer is giving a very dull paper out comes the phone or the tablet or the laptop and they can be doing the same thing. And there are other implications as well. I mean, the, there's, there's a kind of sense that a, a presentation is a, a closed space and there's definitely the policy sense that the classroom is a closed space. You know, the professor begins class, closes the door, bam, you know, if someone wants to come in, the professor controls access to that. It's a, it's a very special space. Well, those doors are now blown wide open. The entire world conceivably has access to every class and every presentation. Students can record video of teachers. They can 
tweet out what they're talking about. They can blog it. I mean, there are no secrets here. And that really, we haven't begun to seriously think about how this changes the classroom dynamic, what it does for privacy, the much ballyhooed debate over safe spaces. We have to rethink what it means about the expectations that professors have for academic freedom in the classroom, which is a little fraught right now. I mean, there's all, I mean, intellectual property in uh, in presentations, academic presentations. This is very complex. So I, I mean, I can go on about this, but overall, I'd say mobile is one of the biggest, biggest challenges uh, for academia as a whole. I mentioned open education resources. Um, that's a second challenge, um, and it's it, it's a frustrating and deep challenge as well because you know, on the one hand, we might think, oh, great, we can save our students money. What a good thing. And there's other advantages too. If, if professors participate in making OER, then they get a chance to be creative and flexible. Uh, I know a professor, a chemist at DePaul University, for example, who published a textbook with, uh, I think it was McGraw-Hill um, on stoichiometry, I believe. And he was very excited, very, you know, very proud of it. But they wouldn't let him use a visualization strategy that he wanted to use. And so when the textbook was done, they gave him back the copyright. He owned it again. He had a chance to redo it, update it a little bit, but also he could do those visualizations that he really wanted to do, share it with the world for free. And for him, what a great win. He got to be, you know, he got to realize his passion and he got to share this with the world. That's fantastic. But there's a downside, which is a lot of faculty fear that open education resources aren't as good and high quality. They fear having to sift through them to find the best stuff. And then sometimes faculty want to make money off of this. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's the, the case, was it UC Riverside? Um, that uh, I don't know if you followed this last month where uh, a math prof got in trouble because he assigned a uh, open education textbook to his students. Well, the department had mandated a certain textbook and they said, no, you have to use this. He said, no, it's a, I forget how much, $400. I'd rather have our students use this free one. It turned out that the chair of the department co-authored the textbook. Oh. And so the chair and the department made official statements saying, but we're not interested. There's no personal bias. (laughs) We believe it's the best textbook. And then the university formally, uh, uh, sanctioned the guy. They they said, you know, this is a bad thing you did. You should have gone along with your classroom, you, with your uh, department chair. Um, you know, and when it comes to open education, when it comes to open scholarly resources, we have similar issues. Uh, one, but there are a lot of small scholarly societies, for example, whose entire income stream really depends heavily on subscription fees. Well, if we can produce journals and articles that have no subscription fees or very cheap ones, do these societies go away? That's a possibility. Um, there's also a kind of sometimes age-based sense, sometimes institutional politics-based sense where uh, you have younger faculty who want to publish in open journals and then their department chairs, their division chairs, their deans say, no, you can't do that. We don't think they're as good. That's no longer the case. I mean we have tons of peer-reviewed open access materials, but if that perception is there, they have to fight with it. So this this can be pretty pretty hairy. Um, so the open revolution is a, another one that I think is extremely challenging. Um, I would say the uh, if we're talking as well about media and how we use media uh, overall, there's a kind of challenge to how we produce media, not how we consume it. So I'm thinking not of making web pages, not of making a syllabus for a class and uploading it to a learning management system. I mean, what we're doing now, recording podcasts or perhaps shooting video or something even larger scale, making an animation or perhaps making a 3D video or making a game. These are 
we know there are a lot of pedagogical benefits to these when they're done right. But it's a challenge for faculty to be able to mount and offer these uh, in part because the number of faculty who are full-time and have the expectation of tenure is shrinking. And if you're a part-time faculty member trying to cobble together uh, a sub-poverty level income from eight different campuses in a year, you're not going to have the time necessarily to start shooting, editing, and distributing video mm-hmm. right? or to uh, develop a game. Um, and that's a real challenge. Um, you know, it's, it's especially challenging because increasingly the American population expects this. We really love video, for example. You know, we consume video like mad, for everything from Netflix to YouTube, and we make video. We do video conferencing all the time, and people upload tons of stuff to YouTube, and we love video. Well, if our population is increasingly video sensitive, how are we going to meet that in the classroom or with classes? That's a challenge, much less if we think about more complex, ambitious tools. Now, virtual reality, for example, is pretty interesting. has a lot of potential, but that's very, very costly to make in terms of time, technology, and money. So uh, we may be losing a kind of uh, resource arms race with trying to match the population where their demands are for media when we can't uh, keep up. So that's another challenge. This has been Absolutely fascinating, Brian. And we've talked about some really huge ideas today. So I would love in closing to give you the opportunity to share something with our listeners who are primarily business officers, because these are big ideas that can be scary sometimes. So what would you want to leave people with uh, in terms of small steps they could take, whether it's a shift in perspective or a literal resource to kind of move in this direction? Because you've you've shared a ton today. Um, But I want I want to leave people with something that feels actionable and positive, um, instead of overwhelming. Okay. Uh, let me give you three little things. Great. Um, and so uh, consider this a Chinese menu that people can choose from. Love it. Um, one is to go back to my earlier point about using social media, um, because that's a great way to keep up with people. One of the secrets, open secrets of Twitter is that it's a great professional development tool because instead of say a blog where you may have to write an essay or, you know, substantial prose, that 140 character limit is a killer. Well, it's a real boon if you can quickly share information. I do this monthly report, Future Trends, and every time I find a news story, I push it out to Twitter immediately and ask people for feedback. Do you think this is a big deal? Is this real? I mean, what kind of impact will this have? And sometimes I don't get anything. Sometimes I do. And that really, it makes me smarter. It gives me intelligence. It makes it easier for me to do my work. Um, So I think, you know, using social media is one. Um, The second is to consciously think about the future and do futures work with your colleagues. By futures work, I I don't mean, you know, go into this full time. I mean, do things like do a little environmental scanning. That is, you know, check the past month of news items and see which of these strike you as most futures oriented. I mean, so we think about the passage of this major new education bill. That seems to indicate that the race to the top and no child left behind era of federally led standards is is breaking now. Well, we're moving away from that K through 12. That's huge. That's a major historical shift. Well, what does it say about higher ed? Does it indicate that the Obama administration is kind of going to move away from their push on higher ed as well? Or will higher, will they continue that? That would be one interesting thing to take a look at. Um, I, I recommend doing this with your staff. 
as many people as possible, get divergent perspectives, talk to people in other departments, talk to people in IT, talk to people in economics or whatever you like, because then you can really get a nice sense of the future to come. And I find that once you talk about it, people are keen on it. I mean, there's a, a major sense in America that higher ed is in a crisis mode. Looking ahead is a really positive thing. Here's the third thing and the easiest and warmest thing you can do. I mentioned that traditional age niche. Now, we'll come back to that for a minute. When I look at 18 to 21-year-olds, I feel awful for them in a lot of ways. I think the older ones have come of age during the Great Recession, when we almost broke the global economy. Right? They're facing, some of them gone through some very bad employment situations, and it's not that much better right now. They look at that. They look at global warming. And they see that the, we are cooking the planet pretty well. Or we're doing almost nothing to stop it. And we're giving it to them as their inheritance. They look at geopolitics. <laughs> things aren't much better. And meanwhile, older people yell at them for being too entitled, for being the every kid gets a trophy generation, for being slackers. And then when I look at these 18 to 21-year-olds, they don't sulk. They don't revolt or they don't start punching people or shooting bankers. Instead, they just kind of square their shoulders and get to work. They are optimistic, they're forward-looking, and they do work. For me, every day I come back to that. That's one of the things that gives me the most optimism and energy. I don't know if we deserve a generation of that quality and caliber, but we've got them, and uh, that keeps me going. And I think your CFOs and CBOs, pay close attention to them, take heart from that, and move forward. Excellent. Thank you so much, Brian. This has been so fascinating, and I really appreciate you spending the time to chat with me today. Oh, my pleasure. It's great talking with you. You can find out more about today's episode by visiting the distance learning section of nakubo.org. You can find Brian at brianalexander.org. Make sure you do subscribe to Nakubo in brief and iTunes so that you'll get the latest episodes instantly. And on behalf of Brian and myself, I'd like to thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Nakubo in Brief. Mm-hmm.